Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 10. Before I get into where I'm going today, I want to just say one, at least one comment regarding yesterday's message. And, um, you know, when you preach and you're done, you always say, I forgot to say that. And so that's one of the blessings about getting to preach a second day is you can follow up on what you forgot. Uh, But I think a lot of people think that you're a successful soul owner if you just go out soul owning once a week. And they think in their mindset, it's all about just going and knocking on doors. And there's nothing wrong with knocking on doors. I'm all for it. But if you were to go through just the average church, the mo- when you just go from person to person and ask their testimony, how they came to know the Lord, the vast majority of them were not reached through door-to-door evangelism. They were reached through some personal connection they had with someone. It could have been a relative, a coworker, some kind of business relationship. But there's some kind of connection that is had with most people in a church. And again, I'm not minimizing knocking on doors. I'm all for it. That's how we get the gospel to every creature. We need to do it. But if we do that to the exclusion of in our personal lives... On a day-to-day basis, we're missing, I think, one of the most effective ways of reaching people in our day-to-day lives. So I just wanted to follow that up uh, with my my sermon yesterday with that thought, because I believe that that was really the heart of that was, okay, it's important to knock on doors, but what about those people in your day-to-day life that you have regular contact with? Are you praying for them? Are you giving them the gospel? Are you living it in front of them? Today, yesterday, we dealt with the soul owner. I said four essentials for the soul owner. Today, we're going to look at the other side. We're going to look at four essentials for the sinner. Four essentials for the sinner. And uh, what we're going to do today is really, I'm going to lay it out in a a continuum, okay? You start here, and there's a continuum, a progression that has to follow in that sequence. Um, I I often talk about uh, airline travel, and that is, I tell people in another life, in another world, I maybe would have been a pilot. I enjoy pilots. I talk to them. I know several of them. And uh, I've learned a few things about them. But one thing I know about aircraft is when you get onto that plane as a pilot, you don't just flip a switch or turn a key and the engine starts up. There is a checklist, a progress uh, that they have to go, a sequence they follow. And uh, oftentimes the co-pilot will read through that checklist. All right, did you turn on this? Did you turn on this? And they go down that list. And then when they're in the air and they're uh, at altitude, there's checklists they do. And when they are getting ready to descend and to land, there's checklists they do. And when they uh, park that plane, there's checklists that they go through to make sure that they've covered every step along the way. Because if you miss one of those, it could be very dangerous. And so today, I want to provide maybe what you might call a checklist, a continuum for the sinner as you give the gospel, something that has to take place. And if any one of these steps are missed, it's going to be a casualty. And so I want to lay this framework, and um, I understand most of what I'm going to be talking today probably isn't new information. But maybe it's packaged in a way that will help you have a framework when you're giving the gospel that the, the sinner, it just helps you to know where that sinner is at. And I have found this to be helpful for myself in giving the gospel, whether it's on the doorstep or maybe you're counseling someone after a gospel message. You can kind of have this framework in your mind, and I believe it will be a big help to you um, as you give the gospel. So we're here in Romans chapter 10. 
uh, verse number 17. We're going to begin. And let me just say right from the start, um, if you're taking notes, maybe what you'd consider doing is writing it out like the first point with an arrow to the second point and the third point, maybe like a continuum. And I think that progression will be the framework I'm trying to get in your mind uh, today. It might be helpful. The first essential for the sinner to come to salvation is the gospel has to be heard. The gospel has to be preached by the soul owner, the preacher, and the gospel has to be heard. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse number 17, such a key verse here. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing the gospel is the first step. Now, I realize, okay, uh, we have seminary students here, and you're thinking, okay, preacher, actually God starts working their heart. He starts drawing them. There's a lot of steps for that. Okay, I, I realize there's other aspects to it, but I'm, ta- I'm taking four main things that um, I, we're going to stop. We're going to just hold it there, okay? I understand that there's a work of God in drawing the sinner, and uh, there's other aspects to it. But the main thing for us as soul owners, as preachers, is we have to declare the gospel, Romans 10, 17. That's how they hear it. We see that in the previous verses. How shall they hear except they, it be preached, right? The gospel has to be declared. Now, uh, the hearing of the word of God is absolutely essential. Uh, you've, I'm sure, understood this. You've heard this about general revelation. That is looking at creation and the stars and, and saying there's got to be a creator. All that. that is wonderful, and God uses that. In fact, there's a young man... In our church, he was adopted from Bulgaria. And when he was just a kid, I think maybe he was eight, nine years old when he was adopted. But he tells the story about uh, um, he prayed a prayer one day. He went out and he was in a rough situation. He would often have to carry his mom home drunk every night and go out and find her. And his mom eventually died and he's in this orphanage and very rough life. But he went out and was looking at the stars one night. And he prayed this prayer, Lord, if you're God, if you're real, whoever you are, show me who you are. A week later, this this just blows my mind. A week later, a family from our church showed up at the orphanage, adopted him, brought him back, and he heard the gospel and he got saved. That was general revelation. He looked up at the stars. He said, there's got to be a creator. Who are you? And God brought someone to him and gave him the gospel. So general revelation is great, but a sinner has to hear the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Some didn't know the message of salvation, and they need to hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Never underestimate just one Bible verse that is given to a sinner. Never underestimate the power of God's word. It is the word of God that uh, works in a sinner and is essential for them to come to salvation. That's why we, uh, as I know in this ministry and other ministries, why do we do so many outreach events? Why do we have Vacation Bible School? Why do we have so many opportunities to preach the gospel? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I love the word uh, for preach. It's keruso. And it means to herald with authority, to declare and herald with authority. And I just love that because, you know, you think about the gospel message and there is authority there. But the authority is not just in the message itself, it's in the the person who sent us. We're sent by Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, to preach the gospel. And so we can proclaim it with authority. And that's what we ought to do. We ought not be ashamed of the gospel. Preach it with authority like Jesus Paul, John the Baptist, they, John the Baptist, they preached and heralded it with authority. 
Never underestimate the power of God's word. Even just, you know, maybe you're working with someone and uh, you've given them the gospel before and you have a good relationship with them and you're trying to think, how can I uh, uh, win this person to Christ? How can I, what's that next step? And maybe one thing you could do is just say, hey, uh, let me leave you with a Bible verse and quote them a scripture verse and leave that with them because the word of God is powerful. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When we give the word of God, it's important for us to have the right framework and the right mindset of what we're actually doing. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the, the giving of the scripture is compared to farming. Okay, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7. Paul said, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. So we have a definite responsibility to plant, to water, but God has to give the increase. And friends, I believe that picture of farming is essential for us because it takes time. You know, it, it takes time to, uh, when you first give that person the gospel, they're not always ready the first time. Sometimes it takes over and over for them to finally understand the gospel. Uh, think about how much confusion is out there today. And oftentimes you knock on someone's door and they're coming with a whole boatload of garbage in their thinking. Wrong, unbiblical thinking. Um, they might have a, in this area of heavy Lutheranism and Catholic uh, doctrine, per, you know, in people's ingrained in their thinking. And sometimes the word of God, we have to give it over and over for it to tear down those strongholds, for the, the wrong thinking that is just so ingrained in their minds to finally get cleared up. It takes time. Don't be discouraged. I mean, I understand it's a thrill when you can knock on someone's door and you can lead them to Christ right there. What a wonderful thing. But a lot of times it's going to take going back and giving the gospel over and over and watering that seed before it finally makes sense in their mind and they're ready to be saved. But friends, this reality here, when we preach the gospel, they have to understand it. Okay, A person can't get saved unless they understand the gospel. Uh, the gospel, what is it? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not going to go through the nuts and bolts of what the gospel is, but you've got to know the gospel. You've got to uh, declare the whole gospel and, uh, to these people. It has to be understood. There's so much confusion um, in people's minds when they hear the first, for the first time a clear presentation of Scripture. Oftentimes it's clouded. There's blinders. There's, uh, when you say faith, they're thinking, maybe if they're a Lutheran, they're thinking, yeah, I exercised faith when I got baptized. That's one of the things for over an hour uh, we were going over with this guy, that, uh, he, this Lutheran man that I mentioned yesterday. He was so, uh, had this stronghold of wrong thinking about infant baptism and how that was faith and tied into it. And it's so hard for them to separate. It's going to take uh, the word of God over and over to clear up the wrong thinking and the spirit of God to illuminate the truth. So we see, first of all, in this continuum, the gospel has to be preached. It has to be heralded. And that was kind of what we talked about yesterday. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time right here. But the gospel has to be preached and it has to be heard. Now, the gospel can be understood. They can, they can hear it. They can understand it. But it needs more than just human understanding. There must be Holy Spirit illumination. 
And this happened when the Spirit of God convicts the sinner. So as we move now to that next uh, part on the continuum, we come to Holy Spirit conviction. Remember, we're looking at the sinner from his perspective. What has to take place? He has to hear the gospel. But secondly, he has to be under conviction. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit cannot be emphasized enough. Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. The gospel makes sense. I mean, when you proclaim it to a, a person, they understand sin. They understand the idea of consequences for our sins. And trust me, sinners can understand the gospel, but they're not ready to be saved at that point if they just understand it. There's got to be conviction, the holy work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 8, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. That word reprove means to convince, to uh, refute, to bring to light, to expose. And that's a work that God does. You know, when I look at this continuum, it's actually a relief. Okay, because we can uh, we can kind of get weighed down with the fact that oh this person how do how are they going to get saved and what I I can't do enough I can't explain it well enough you know what our job is only this first part to proclaim it to herald the message of salvation we can't bring conviction we are to preach with uh, with conviction uh, the Bible says in First Timothy that the preacher is to reprove exhort with all long suffering reprove he's to convict. But uh, the, the convicting is something the Holy Spirit does in the sinner's life. And so we need to remember, okay, my job is to proclaim and to herald with authority the gospel message. The Holy Spirit does the rest. Now, we got to pray and we got to trust God to do a work in that person's life. But uh, we have to proclaim it, but the Holy Spirit brings conviction. He will reprove, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. When I was in seminary... One of my professors here um, called it convicting grace. And it really struck me. That was one of the things that stuck out to me in that class is how essential conviction is in the salvation of a sinner. If we skip over that, that person won't get saved. They have to come under conviction of their sins. And that's something God does in their life. You can see this. Um, in, turn with me to John chapter 8. I want to just see a couple illustrations of that convicting uh, that needs to take place. John chapter 8. I'm not going to read the whole story, but here you have that woman caught in adultery. And she uh, is brought to Jesus. And you see, you know, the story, Jesus steps down or kneels down. He starts writing it in the ground. And he, verse 7, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, verse 9, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, being beginning at the Elvis. There's that word convicted by their own conscience. That uh, complete change in their thinking, that countenance change. You know, here they are, ha, we got this lady. And then Jesus starts writing something in the sand, and they come under conviction. And they turn and head out. Of course, they weren't uh, ready to get saved at that point, but uh, there was conviction. 
Uh, we see this also in Acts chapter 24 with Felix. It says he trembled when Paul was giving him the gospel. When Paul was reasoning with him, it says he trembled. But he didn't get saved. He was under conviction, but he didn't get saved that day. In John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, we have a Jesus compared to the light of the world. Remember that? And friends, what does the light do? The light exposes, it reproves. And that's when we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, what are we doing? We're letting the, sh the light shine so it can convict and expose that person's sin. Um, a few uh, last year, beginning of last year, 2020, just before the pandemic and all that, my wife and I, we were in Kenya for about three weeks. I have two brothers that live over there. And uh, we were over there preaching in some of the churches and in the, the Bible college over there. And um, when we, one of the things we did while there, while there, we went out soul winning. And uh, one of the days we were out witnessing and I was talking to this young man. And he lived in this apartment complex real close to a university. And I think there was a lot of college students that lived in that apartment. And so I kind of went into that thinking, you know, I know what's going on in this place. And so I started talking to this guy. And, of course, over there, it's so wonderful because people are just willing to listen to you. And maybe they're not all that interested, but they're just they're polite and they'll listen to you. And it's it's a blessing uh, to give people the gospel and to talk to him. But this young man, for over an hour, I went through the gospel with him. And he, I think he truly understood it. But you know what? At the end of that hour, I just didn't sense the Spirit of God was convicting him. And you know what? I am confident I could have led that man in a prayer. But I don't think he would have gotten saved. Because it's not just a matter of understanding the gospel. There has to be the convicting of the Holy Spirit that takes place in order for a person to come to salvation. So we have to be sensitive. And, you know, we can't always discern, you know, we're not always going to get it right. Okay. Judas was there with, with the disciples and he was unsaved. Okay. But we have to best of our ability to discern, is this person sensing the convicting of the Holy Spirit? And we can see that. I mentioned to Felix how he trembled. In Acts chapter 7, uh, the people, when Stephen was preaching the gospel, they, they gnashed. And you read the terminology there. They were under conviction, but they rejected. And so when someone hears the gospel and is under conviction, that's important. But a person under conviction can reject it or they can receive it. And we need to be sensitive. Paul, what did he do when he was confronted with the gospel? There was this humility that came and he received it. The publican in Luke chapter 18 he was under deep conviction. You can see the sense of his conviction over the weight of his sin. So be sensitive. Look for signs of conviction in a person's life as you are giving them the gospel. It's great if they understand it, but they must come under conviction of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3 compares the, the wind of the Spirit. John 3 verse 8, it says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou canst not tell the sound of it. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The convicting of the Spirit is absolutely essential. And if the Spirit of God isn't blowing, so to speak, on that sinner when you're giving them the gospel, they're not ready to be saved. There has to be that convicting of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, he cannot be saved. So be sensitive to that. Preach the gospel. Is there Holy Spirit conviction in their life? And so we're moving along in this progression. We preach the gospel is heralded. 
The sinner hears it. He needs to come under conviction. And thirdly, godly sorrow. We see this progression right in Scripture. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, as, you're, as a soul owner, you want to be um, very accurate with the, the gospel and you want to make sure, you know, there's a couple things a soul owner fears. First of all, he fears not giving the gospel. He fears uh, not making, bringing that person to a decision and really uh, challenging them to make that decision. But a soul owner ought to fear, hey, if this person is not ready to be saved right now, I got to let the word of God keep working in their lives. You know, for uh, if you read about past preachers in the past, one thing they would do is they'd come into a church or a town and they'd preach for weeks sometimes before they'd offer an invitation. What were they doing? They were letting the Holy Spirit of God just bring people under deep conviction. And um, I'm not saying that that has to be the way, but it's not. The principle is certainly right. People have to come under deep conviction, and that conviction leads to godly sorrow. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse number 9. Look at it with me. Now we rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What does it say in verse 10? For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Friends, godly sorrow is an essential part in this continuum of bringing a soul to Christ. Now, I'm not saying, this doesn't say that every person that gets saved needs to shed tears. Okay, that's not what it's saying. But godly sorrow is a working of the Holy Spirit deep within that sinner that says, you know what? Under, based on the hearing of the Word of God and the conviction of the Word of God, this could, godly sorrow is working in them, bringing them to repentance. Matthew Henry said, godly sorrow is the antecedent to true repentance. Godly sorrow is not repentance, but the preparation of the heart for it. I think that's essential. There's got to be a working of God in all these different steps that brings him to godly sorrow in opposition to worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, uh, you know, um, maybe a sorrow because you're going to get punished for it. You see that I see that with my kids. You know, so you can tell when they're really sorry about it, so, something. And you can tell when they're just saying sorry because they got caught. Or sorry because um, mom and dad are making them to say it, right? There's a big difference. And that is essential. And when we're giving the gospel, is there that godly sorrow working in that person's life? Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. In, in the book of Luke, you see several, I think, great illustrations of this. And um, one of them you see in Luke chapter 15, you have the parable. There's one parable given in Luke 15 with three iterations. You have the lost son the lost coin, the lost sheep. And uh, you have that, the picture of that lost son coming back to the father. The, 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 he comes to the end of himself under conviction and godly sorrow leads him back to his father. But I want you to look at Luke chapter 18. And here we see, I think, a great illustration of what godly sorrow looks like. You have the, the two men, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. 
The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Friends, right there is a great picture of someone who knows the truth. You see it in his prayer. He understood the gospel. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I deserve death. What striking upon his breast was saying, I deserve the stroke of death. Be merciful to me. There was a sinner under conviction of the Holy Spirit that true godly sorrow was working in him and was going to produce justification, genuine salvation. And so, again, this continuum is absolutely essential. You take one of these out, and that person won't get saved. You preach the gospel. The sinner hears it. The Holy Spirit does this great work of conviction that produces godly sorrow. And the fourth and final step on this continuum is two words, repentance and faith. And I'm doing it on purpose combined, repentance and faith. Because that, as you maybe learned in netcasters, whatever, you have uh, salvation is the coin. And it has two sides, repentance and faith. And both of these are essential. Um, there's a lot of uh, discussion and a lot of uh, uh, debate about some of these terms. But let me just say a few things that I don't think will be controversial. First of all, repentance and faith are not synonyms. The concepts are closely connected and they go hand in hand. They're coupled. You cannot separate them. And you see this throughout the scripture. Oftentimes, like Acts chapter 16, verse 31, he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. All right? There's the word, the concept of belief. But in, mixed in that, of course, is true repentance. And then in other cases, you see uh, where it says we're to be preached repentance to all nations. And so these words go hand in hand. If you separate them or eliminate one, you get into trouble. Both of these are key elements of salvation, but they go hand in hand. You cannot have someone believe who doesn't repent. You can't have someone who repents but doesn't believe. They go hand in hand. You must have them together like a coin. That salvation coin has repentance on one side and faith on the other side. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And what, what I try to do in my mind is say it's not complicated. I try to keep things really simple. Because I believe when it comes to this issue, you have people often in reaction to each other. You have two different sides. Ones who make it so difficult and they overemphasize a word out of scriptural bounds. And then you have those who often in reaction to other people will eliminate it. And I think we need to strike the balance here. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, I just love the simplicity of this because it just takes all the, the intellectual theological parts out of it and it brings it down to the bottom shelf. And that's what I want to do. 31 and 32 of Luke 5. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love this analogy, and I'll be honest, I stole it from Dr. Jim. But repentance is the change of mind that leads the sinner to go to the doctor. 
Here, just imagine with me, and I think about this in Numbers 21, 8 and 9, okay? You have the, the serpents in the wilderness, they're biting, the people are dying. And put yourself back in that situation, okay? You get bit by a serpent, and you know based on the fact that everyone else that's gotten bitten is dying. And so maybe it's a matter of a couple days, maybe they die within a few hours, but you're laying there, and you get bitten, and you think to yourself, you know what, I don't want to look at the serpent, on the pole. I'm going to try something else. I'm going to go try some natural remedies. You know, I could see, I know some of you would probably try that. You'd probably go out and try to uh, get some aloe vera and whatever, and you'd try to mix some concoctions together, and you would try to heal it yourself before you go to the doctor. But finally, it gets so bad, and you say, the person says, you know what, I'm done. I'm about to die. I'm just going to do what Moses said to do. I'm going to go look at the serpent. There's a change of mind. That says, you know what? My way won't work. God's way works. And so uh, the, the repentance is that sinner coming. He's heard the gospel. He's under conviction. It's produced godly sorrow, which leads to repentance. One way you know whether it's real sorrow or not is whether it leads to genuine salvation. And uh, uh, that person comes under conviction and they say, you know what? I'm tired of my way. I'm try, tired of trying to earn my way to salvation, uh, to heaven. I'm trying to uh, figure this out. I'm going to the doctor, Jesus Christ. And that is the change of mind that has to take place. But notice what it says. He came to call sinners to repentance. One thing that always sticks out to me when I took uh, soteriology and seminary here, the professor, we were talking about this, and he said this statement, God doesn't save rebels. He saves sinners. In other words, as long as the sinner has his fists up to God saying, you know what, I'll take the get out of jail free card, but my life, my sin, I'm holding on to it. God can't save that person until the fists come down and say, God, forgive me of my sin. The thing that's condemning me to hell, I'm changing my mind about it. I'm changing my mind about my situation, about the judgment I deserve, about the one who can save me. All that takes place in a sinner, and if you miss one of those, if, the, you know, if, a, if a person's sitting there and saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think I deserve judgment for my sin. Well, guess what? They need to have a change of mind about who they are. They deserve, need to, uh, maybe they think I'm not that bad of a person. They need a change of mind about who they really are. Maybe they think Jesus isn't the only way. They need to have a change of mind about who Jesus Christ is. First Thessalonians 1.9, they turn to God from idols. There was that repentance taking place. Acts 20, uh, verse 21, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these aspects are essential. They go hand in hand. We can't minimize or uh, remove one of these. We've got to hold on to both of them to have the salvation coin. A few years ago, I, was, I, I, I help out, at, I still do help out at the University of Whitewater. We have a, a campus ministry there. And over the years, we've seen a number of souls saved and uh, people added to the church, even through that ministry. And um, one, this was maybe two years ago. It was a beautiful day out. I think it may have been like a fall or spring day. And it's just one of those days people were glad to be outside. And we were there witnessing on the campus. And I started talking to this young man, nice young man, very sincere. And we were going through the gospel. He probably gave me at least 30 to 45 minutes. And I'm going through the gospel. I'm, I'm going through each step by step. 
And we get to the end, and I firmly believe he understood the gospel. And I even think he was under conviction. But I took him to this as we were getting to the end and getting to that point of decision where he's got to make something, a decision about it. I took him to this passage and I said, you know, to get saved, the Bible says we need to repent and believe the gospel. And I said in Luke chapter 5, because you know what, when you, you need to know who your audience is. When you're talking to a college student living on a campus, there is so much sin going on there. And a lot of people are there because of that. A lot of people choose to go to college because they want to not only get an education to get a good job, but they know the campus life. They enjoy it. They want it. And God can do that work of conviction about their sin and godly sorrow and change their mind about their sin and and their need of salvation. But as I took him to this passage and said, young man, uh, God wants to save you. He can save you today. But look at this passage. It says, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I explained to him how it's the sinner saying, you know what? I'm changing my mind. I'm going to the doctor because he's sick of his sickness. He wants deliverance from his sin sickness. He doesn't want to keep uh, living in it and keep holding on to his sin. He wants deliverance from it. And I said, Jesus wants to save you, but you've got to come to a place where you're sick enough to go to him. And I said, are you sick enough? And with all sincerity, he said, I'm not sick enough. He understood the gospel. I firmly believe that. We went through it very clearly. I believe he was under conviction. But he said, I'm not sick enough. You know what he was saying? He's like, there's too much sin on this campus that I enjoy. I don't want Jesus to change that. And friend, I'm not saying you've got to stop sinning to get saved. But I'm saying the fists have to come down and say, you know what? This sin that I do enjoy is wrong. And I need deliverance from it. And so I like to say it's not complicated. When the Spirit of God is at work, He can give the soul under discernment. He can make it so clear while this person is under conviction. I just love giving the gospel when you can see the convicting work of the Holy Spirit at work. And it just helps the rest of it to flow. But boy, I've seen people, I remember we had revival meetings at our church. There was a man sitting there, he was a coworker, he was a boss of someone there, and he, he liked his sin. And boy, he was sitting there, and I remember at the invitation, he was gripping the pew. He had heard it, he understood it, he knew he needed it, but he didn't want to come to Jesus. He didn't want to be delivered from his sin. And he didn't get saved to this day, he is still not saved. But we've got to follow this continue. We've got, I think it helps with this framework in our minds. Have you preached the gospel to that person? If you preach it, then you're allowing, you know, keep watering it. Maybe you need to go back over and over again and water that, the, the gospel in that person's life and keep giving them the scripture. But that allows the Holy Spirit to convict them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Give the word of God. Don't be afraid of the word of God. Give it over and over and over to the people you're seeking to win to Christ. Text them that verse. Say, think about this today. And let the scriptures work. That can produce conviction which leads to godly sorrow in that person's life, which leads to repentance and faith and true salvation. It's not complicated. Our job is to herald it, to preach it. But I trust this framework will just be helpful as you analyze someone maybe you're seeking to win to Christ and say, you know what, are they, are they sensing the convicting of the Holy Spirit? Because think about it, how damaging it. If they're not under conviction, and we maybe lead them to, to pray a prayer or something, and they don't get saved, genuinely saved. That's a problem. That could create a lot of confusion in their minds. And so 
May this help you today as you're a soul owner and desire to win people to Christ, to, to have this framework in your mind. And may the Lord help us to uh, be effective in our evangelism and winning of souls. And uh, the, the, I know the Lord is going to use you guys because I know the heart that you have. And may God, through this group, bring many into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these students. I know their heart, or I can see it. They love you. They love souls. And that's oftentimes the biggest battle. Lord, as they proclaim the gospel and herald it, would you help them to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's the greatest thing, the greatest message this world needs. Help them to be bold in proclaiming it. Lord, as this framework was given, biblical framework of conviction and godly sorrow and repentance and faith, oh Lord, may it just be something in their soul that's solidified, that as they give the gospel, they would, it would just help them to be effective in their evangelism. Lord, bless these students, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.